Did you know that real estate is the method where many people in America have become multimillionaires? Do you want to learn about real estate? Stand by. Welcome to the Real Estate Exam Podcast. This is a podcast where we will provide you sample lessons for the real estate exam for the states which we offer full real estate exam audio lessons. Our audio lessons are designed so that you can study for the real estate exam in your state while driving, exercising, or otherwise using time which would be unavailable for reading or looking at a computer monitor. For more information on the full series of lessons, which we have available in various states, go to reexampodcast.com. Good luck in your studies. A career in real estate sales can be extremely rewarding, but the first step is to get your real estate exam license. This is Franz again. In this lesson, you're going to be talking about property ownership and land use regulation. This is the second sample lesson of the five sample lessons you signed up for to help you prepare for the California real estate salesperson exam. Welcome to this lesson entitled Property Ownership and Land Use Controls and Regulation, Part 2. So in Part 1, we talked a little bit about what the difference is between real property and land and real estate, some of these different terms, what the differences are, whether something's a fixture or not a fixture. In this lesson, we'll just keep on going, talking about some of the other basic terms that you're going to want to know when talking about land and real estate. So let's go ahead and jump right in. We're going to talk about appurtenant rights. So appurtenant rights, they're additional beneficial rights interests and items that have to do with land ownership beyond just the actual land, the physical ground that you own. So there's other rights that go beyond this. A good example of these rights are water rights, air rights, and mineral rights. So the first is water rights. And that means that it talks about the rights that you have to the water that's on your land. And this is much more important in regions or states, a lot of them in the West, where water is more scarce. And there are two different kinds of water rights. There are riparian rights and littoral rights. Riparian rights means that the landowner has the right to reasonable use of water that's on the property or flowing through the property or up against the property. When you're dealing with a body of water that is navigable, that means that you're able to sail on it, do a ship on it. The property owner's boundary is going to go right to the edge of the water. So they don't own the navigable waters, but it goes their property goes right to the boundary of it. If it's a non-navigable body of water, that means that you don't put boats on it or other kinds of sailing craft, the property's 
the property owner's boundaries go to the water's center point. So if it is a navigable body of water, it just goes to the boundary, the edge. And if not, then it goes to the center point of the body of water. Then we have what are called littoral rights. And these littoral rights refer to the right of the landowner to have reasonable use of the water that is abutting the property. So such as in lakes and in oceans, the ones that are, so if you own a spot of beachfront property or a lakeside property, that you can reasonably use the water that is right next to your property. There's a few other terms that you're going to want, you're going to, want to know when talking about water rights. The first is accession. Accession is the right to attaining new land because soil is deposited by natural elements. So like if there's water coming through, it is depositing more soil, more minerals, that you can then have the right to that land that is now becoming part of your land. We have also then erosion. And erosion means that erosion that the natural elements such as water, wind, and so forth have caused some of the land to decrease, to go away. So it's the opposite of accession. Accession is talking about gaining land. Erosion is talking about losing land. Then we have accretion. And this is deposit of soil by water that results in a steady increase in the land. We have alluvial. Alluvial is water, uh, water that shifts alluvium soil, resulting in a gradual increase in the land. We have avulsion, water abruptly changes its course, and this means that the land is going to rapidly decrease. So the water suddenly changes course, less land. And then reliction, this is the retreat of water causing a steady increase in the land. So these are all terms that you're going to need to know if you're talking about these water rights. There's several other naturally recogni nationally recognized water rights. So these are not just for California, but are recognized all over the country. We have the natural flow doctrine. This states that riparian owner's use cannot cause the water to become less. So to diminish in the amount of water, the quality of water, or the pace of the water. So the pace that the water flows through the property. So anyone who has access to the water, they can't try to change it so that this these kinds of access will change for other people who might also have access to the same kind of water. We have then the doctrine of reasonable use. And so we just talked about that a little bit with the other terms. Is that just saying every person who has rights to the water has reasonable use to it. They can't do things to change it a lot. You can't take it all for yourself, but you can't use it to excess, but you can use it for the reasonable tasks of day-to-day -day living. And then we have the doctrine of prior appropriation. And this refers to water rights that are not in conjunction with owning land. And these can be sold and mortgaged as real property. So that's a little, little bit different than, wa than water that just happens to be on your land. Then we have the doctrine of beneficial use. That just means that the first users of the water have priority, but then they have to go ahead and use it for a beneficial use within a reasonable time frame. And then finally, the doctrine of correlative rights, and this puts a limit on the person who owns the land regarding their share of the water. So let's say if there's 
a bunch of different landowners around the same body of water, then there is a restriction about how, how much each of the landowners can use, and it's usually in proportion to how much of the land that they own around the body of water. So we talked a little bit about water rights. You also have mineral rights, so things that might be on your property that are valuable, especially things like oil, coal, gas, these natural resources, the fossil fuels especially, or other minerals that can be useful. Mineral rights belong to the person who owns the land, and they can actually be sold separately from the land. And for example, if somebody buys a land, they can then lease the mineral rights to a third party. So let's say you own a certain parcel of land that has natural gas below the surface. You can then lease the mineral rights to that parcel of land to a third party who actually has the equipment to go ahead and take out all of these natural resources for which they would then pay you a fee. So... We have the distinction between liquid minerals and solid minerals. Liquid minerals, such as oil and gas, are subject to what's called the law of capture, which grants the person who owns the surface of the land the right to legally drill and remove as much of the oil or gas or whatever it is as possible. And you can't actually claim ownership over the minerals until you bring them up to the surface and they become personal property. Then we have solid minerals, things like coal and metals and other valuable substances under the earth, saying that the person who owns the surface land can then go ahead and take these solid minerals from the ground and take ownership of them. Then finally, we have the simplest of all, which is the air rights. And this is kind of like water where they have rights to the air, but you the reasonable amount doctrine is still in place. You have the right to use the airspace around your property a reasonable amount. So you know, not too many things flying through the air. That one doesn't come up nearly as often. Okay, so now we've talked about these three kinds of rights, the air, the mineral, the water. We're going to talk about a new topic called encumbrances. Now, an encumbrance is a claim or a lien on a piece of real property. One example is an easement. An easement is a right that's granted for a specific use of a piece of land to another person. And most of the time, this is related to rights such as gas or water, so that somebody else can use them. The land that is granting the easement is called encumbered. So it's encumbered land if there is an easement on it. And then the land that is benefiting from the easement is called, is said to have an easement, easement appurtenant. And so the first one, the one that is giving the easement, is called the servient tenement, and the one that is receiving the benefit is the dominant tenement. An easement runs with the land. That means it automatically transfers when the property is conveyed, and you can't sell it by itself. Then we have what's called an easement in gross. This kind of easement doesn't provide a benefit to a specific kind of property, but rather a person or business instead. Now, easements are given in several different ways. The first is an express grant. So a property owner says, comes right out and says, 
that this other party has a specific right to use the land. So it's very clear. The second is an express reservation. And though instead of granting the right to use, the person who owns the property reserves a specific right to use the land after they sell the property. So after they sell it, they still reserve the right to use it in a specific way. That's a kind of encumbrance. The next is an easement by implication. An implied easement comes when someone who's bought land can only access their land by crossing property that's owned by the person from whom they purchased it. So they're implicated by saying, oh, I can only reach my land by crossing the land that's not owned by me, but that was from the person I bought my land from. Then we have an easement by necessity, and that this happens with a court order if a buyer learns later that they can only reach their property by crossing the land of the purchase of the person they purchased the property from. So you can get it, if you find that out later, you get a court order and you get an easement by necessity. And then finally we have an easement by prescription. And this is given when a when a piece of land is used openly and notoriously for a certain period of time. And it only grants use and not ownership or exclusivity. So if something is used openly and it's well known that it's been used for this, they get an easement by prescription. An easement ends when, number one, the dominant tenant can acquire the encumbered land. And so then there's no need for an easement anymore. They just acquired the land. Number two, the land of both the dominant and the servient tenements is combined into one large property. So in that case, there's no need for there to be an easement anymore because it's then one property. And then three, an easement by prescription is terminated when it's not used. So if it, it goes a while without being used, then it just becomes terminated. So let's wrap up by talking about a couple of terms that you also need to know. The first is encroachment, and the second is a lien. Encroachment means that a structure or a fixture is built on property that belongs to someone else. And in that case, they're said to be encroaching on someone else's land. This can happen often by mistake. So when boundary lines are not well defined or there's poor planning done, on one case of one party or another, then encroachment can happen. And when this happens, there are two different ways that this can be resolved. The first is that the encroaching building or structure is removed or destroyed. In that case, nothing is more, nothing more is being encroached upon. However, the second one is that a lien or an easement can then be obtained for that structure, in which case, Things are fine again. The second is a lien, and the official meaning of lien is that it's a form of security granted over an item of property to secure the payment of a debt or obligation. Okay, so let's go ahead and shift gears a little bit. Let's talk about some of the restrictions on the use of property. There are two main categories of of restrictions that you're going to need to know about. We have governmental restrictions, 
restrictions from the government, and then private restrictions. These are restrictions that are not handed down from the government. So government restrictions can be at different levels of government. You could have ones from the local level, the state level, the federal level even, and they limit the right for people to use their property is in certain ways, but these are usually to protect kind of the public safety, uh, to protect the environment in some cases, and also to meet certain building codes, that sort of thing. The first is eminent domain. And this, this term means that it's the government's power to take private property for public use at the at any level of government and can be taken from an individual or a company or whatever but it's done for the public good and so the, there's three basic requirements first it has to be taken for the public good the property needs to be used for the same public purpose it's being taken for and then the property owner has to be given just compensation and so the the courts decide what the fair market value of the property is, and then they can go ahead and re reimburse the person from whom the property was taken. So for example, the government decides that it is in the public's good to build a certain highway. There's a lot of traffic, it's backing up the freeways, it's putting people in danger. The government decides that, okay, then this needs to be the path, but there are some houses in the way of that path. So these houses would have to be demolished. The government can then come to the property owners and say, okay, under eminent domain, we need you to get to a different house, but we're, we're gonna take your house, they're gonna be demolished, but then we're going to give you fair market value for your property. So they can't just go in and take it without reimbursing the property owners. And the process of exercising these powers of eminent domain is called condemnation. And in this case, they pay out what's called severance damage. And this is a payment to the owner of the property for the inconvenience that's caused by eminent domain. And then we also have what's called inverse condemnation. This happens when the government takes the property, but then fails to pay the compensation. So in this case, the owner could then take them to court to get the compensation that they are owed. Another restriction is called police power. And this is just saying that the government controls the rights of property by creating guidelines that have to be followed when you own a piece of property, such as zoning laws, development laws. So zoning laws, for example, say what kind of things can be built on a particular parcel of land. So if it's zoned for residential, then you have to build houses or apartments or something like that. If it's zoned for commercial, you, you, then you build stores, that sort of thing. But they also talk about like how tall the buildings can be, what they can be made out of. So let's talk a little bit more about the categories of land use under zoning. So we have residential, commercial, industrial, and rural. And you could take each one of these major categories and you can break them down into all sorts of subcategories. But we're just going to talk about uh, the large ones. We said I talked about residential, talked about commercial. Industrial then is, say, making factories, buildings that are meant to produce things. 
And then we finally have rural things like that's land use for things like farming and ranching, having animals, things of that nature. But you can also get zoning exemptions that they so landowners can then apply for exceptions to existing zoning laws or guidelines. So there's three different ways that they can apply for exceptions to these sort of normal zoning laws. The first is non-conforming use. And this usually applies to areas that have been rezoned and there was already structures on them. So say it was a residential area before, then it gets rezoned as a commercial area and they already have existing houses on there or apartments where people live. And so when new laws are passed, getting this, so the new laws are passed and the thing is rezoned, the place is rezoned, the getting an exemption is usually an automatic thing. That means, and it's often called grandfathering someone in. If you have this exemption, then you can do something that's against the usual use. It's the non-conforming use. But it's a different thing if you then want to make large modifications or build more of the same non-conforming things. That's not automatic. So you, you then have to go ahead and probably apply for another exemption if you want to do something that is large-scale non-conforming after you've already been grandfathered in. The second is conditional use. And so these are just kind of a case-by-case -case basis. So, for example, you have a hospital or a church or something that's not that's not actually residential. People don't really live there, but it is a good idea for them to be inside of residential neighborhoods so people have access to them. So you can have, say, I want to build a church in the middle of a residential area. You get the exception under conditional use. And then finally, we have variance. And variance, these are exceptions for minor exceptions, such as the size of your parking lot, the size of your deck, the size of your buildings, the heights, just of the little things, not the kind of the big overarching zoning things, but the little kind of details about your individual property. So that's the difference there. And finally, we have state and local permitting codes. All buildings in California have to comply with what's called the Uniform Building Code. And they, these are the minimums. People can absolutely go above this, but they have to at least meet the minimum standards for how buildings are built, how they're constructed, how they're wired and the plumbing's put in, all of the kind of little details that go into building a property. So there are state ones, there's also likely local ones, so from town to town or city to city, that have to do with local fire codes or building codes. And once a building is proposed, they have to get a building permit that is going to show that they are going to build everything up to code so that it's not going to have problems down the road. And then there are some regulations that are called environmental hazards and regulations, and then these are different things that regulate how building is going to affect the environment, not only the, the physical environment, the pollution, air pollution, water pollution, but also the animals that are native that can be affected by large buildings. Thank you for listening. If you found this lesson valuable, perhaps you might consider purchasing the full audio course available 
at reexampodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We hope you found this lesson valuable. Again, we are offering audio lessons for the real estate exam for various states. Check out our website, reexampodcast.com, to see if we have audio lessons available for your state. If you have any thoughts or suggestions, please contact me by using the contact form at the website, reexampodcast.com. Keep studying. Keep studying.